Character is more important than competency. And um, <clears throat> when, when we went home last week and we were sitting down to eat lunch, Charlie was very quick to point out to me that being able to teach is a competency issue and not a character issue. And there's, there is truth in that, that teaching does involve a level of competency. But anyway, that got my mind thinking, and I just wanted to clarify a little bit more about what's it mean character is more important than competency. Well, uh, first, it doesn't mean that competency doesn't matter. Okay, when we say character is more important than competency, we're not saying competency doesn't matter, nor are we saying that you can be incompetent as long as you love Jesus. We're not saying that either. Uh, because in the bigger scheme of things, the reason that character is more important than competency is that it takes much longer and it's much more difficult to develop good character than it is to develop competency. And it's much easier to destroy character than it is competency. And so when we talk about character and we talk about competency in the church, it's not an either or, it's a both and proposition. But we must always recognize that what comes first, what's of first importance is character. And now as we've looked at these qualifications, this list of qualifications that we have here in chapter 3 verses uh, 2 through 7, uh, the one thing, uh, well there's a couple things you notice right away. First you're going to notice right away that these, are quali these qualifications are all adjectives. And uh, you would also notice that they're all masculine. Now why is that important? Because adjectives describe the subject. They, they are saying this is what the subject is. They're giving us a, a description of the subject, and the subject in this case is the overseer or the elder. So all these things are describing what an approved overseer, what an approved elder is. And the fact that they are all masculine emphasizes and reinforces that these are to apply to a man. A man must be uh, the overseer, uh, the elder. We would also notice if we would go in detail and study each and every one of these words, and we're going to study these words, but we're not going to jump into a, a tremendous amount of detail, but we would notice that they're all pretty rare. When you go through these lists of qualifications and you try to find them in other places in the Bible, um, you find that they're, they just don't appear that often. Some of them only appear in the pastoral epistles. And so we notice some of these things as we just look at these words. And, and to get your brains working here a little bit, I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you some questions related to the qualifications we're going to look at this morning. How many of you have ever had to work for a bad boss? Don't answer that question, especially Brenda Proctor. <laughs> How many of you have ever had to work for a bad boss? Have you ever had to work for someone who one day they tell you to work on this and I want you to go this way with it? And then the next day you come into work and they say, no, no, don't do that. I want you to go in a different direction with it. And then the following day you come into work and they say, no, no, now go into a third direction. And so by the time you get to Wednesday, you find out you've gone in four or five different directions over this one task that you're supposed to be working on. Does that sound like fun or frustration? It's frustrating. Have you ever worked for a supervisor who seemed to never think through their decisions, where it seems like every decision they make always comes with all kinds of unintended consequences. And then you have to go back and you spend your time cleaning up their mess. Is that fulfilling or is it annoying? Have you ever worked with someone who was very good at what they do? I mean, they, they when it comes to their work, they know everything about their job, but they're a horrible person, a person that you can't 
uh, respect. Yes, they're good at their job, but their private life is utter and sheer chaos. Do you enjoy working with that type of person? How about working with a boss who has favorites, who shows partiality? You know that when the best jobs come up, you know when the best tasks come up, you know when an opportunity for promotion or raise comes up, the people that will be considered are those in the in crowd. How does that motivate you in your work? And so as we continue to look at these qualifications in verse 2 in particular uh, today, we will see that not only are these qualifications very principled, they're based on biblical principles, but they also work out very practically. Think if every business leader or every politician applied these principles to themselves. They took these principles and they lived by them. Think how much better their business would be. Think about how much better our country would be. And so when we take these ideas of a bad boss, I just talked to you about a bad boss, and we apply those to church leadership, we see the same difficulties coming into play. Uh, what happens when Elders are all over the map in giving directions to the church. One week they're going in this direction, the next week they're going in another direction, next month is something else, and they're just, they're not leading the church in any one direction. They're leading the church all over the place. They're taking the, the shotgun approach to leading the church instead of the rifle approach. Uh, what happens when uh, the decisions that are made are not well thought out? What happens when there's all sorts of unintended consequences that cause more and more difficulty? What happens when an elder tries to lead the church, but their life is in utter chaos? What happens when elders show favoritism and partiality? Here is what happens. What should bring us joy? What should bring us gladness and rejoicing in serving the Lord and serving in his church becomes drudgery, becomes a very difficult task. And so there are serious negative consequences when the leaders of the church do not meet these qualifications. So let's now bring your eyes down to verse 2 here in our passage. And we have covered the first two qualifications, blameless and husband of one wife. But let me read verse 2 here. It says, a bishop must then be. Let me stop right there. Every single one of these qualifications is a must is a must be. It is a requirement. It is a necessity. It's not a suggestion. It is a must be. So a bishop or overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. So the next qualification we're going to look at this morning is the third one, and that's the word temperate. Temperate. Uh, a overseer must be temperate. This is the word nephalion. Nephalion. The foundational meaning of this word is the idea of being well-balanced, or having self-control. And, and this word is used it's sort of, it's an interesting way in which it's used because it's used in contrast to its opposite. So when it's used, it always has, well, what's the opposite of the meaning of this word? And so what is the opposite of being well-balanced? It's being imbalanced, given to extremes, going to one extreme or another extreme. What's the opposite of having self-control? Being out of control, someone who is out of control. Now, this word is at times, in the ancient world, it was used for being sober. 
as opposed uh, to being drunk. And being drunk is marked by at least two things. Imbalance. You know, if a, a police officer pulls you over under the suspicion that you're drinking uh, under the influence of something, uh, the sobriety test they give you is always going to be walk down this line putting one foot in front of the other. And one thing that drunk people cannot do is do that. They, they will fall from one side or the other. There's, a, there's an imbalance there. We also know that being drunk makes you lose your self-control. You, you do things when you're drunk that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, those things that you would normally control, you, you find that you don't care about doing those things anymore, and you'll go do anything that you wouldn't do normally. And so this is, being drunk's a good picture in our minds of the opposite of what it means to be temperate, what it means to be self-controlled. Um, so the meaning, the meaning here is that the elders are not to be given to extremes in any direction. They are to exercise self-control. They are to exercise restraint. They are steady. That's one of the words that you fill in there. They are steady. They're balanced. They're not going one way or the other. This word's only used three times in the New Testament. Of course, it's used here for overseers or elders, but it's also used of the wives of deacons in chapter 3 of this book, verse 11. And then it's used of older men in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Now, why is it important? Why is it important that the elders be temperate? Well, we have to remember that the elders of the church have been invested by God with authority and responsibility over their local church. God has given them authority that they are to use in their local church. And this is true when we think about all of these qualifications. That God has invested authority and in, in leadership and responsibility in the elders of the church. And so this authority, this power, this responsibility must be held in balance. They are not to lord their authority over the church, but neither are they to be the puppets of the church. They are to lead the church. The church isn't to lead them. If you think of a puppet and a puppet master, the elders are not to be a puppet master controlling each aspect of the church minutely so they always do what they want to do but neither are they to be controlled by the church it doesn't mean they don't listen to the church but they're not controlled by the church I think a good picture of the opposite of this kind of person is a manic depressant I don't know if you've ever known somebody who suffered from being a manic depressant but what happens in that person's life is that one moment they are on a high. One moment they're full of energy, their mind is focused, they're happy, and in an instant they're sad, they're depressed, they're tired, they're exhausted. And a manic depressant lives their life between those two extremes. They're either on one extreme or another. The picture that we get of an elder here is that they're in the middle. They stay in the middle of the road. They are balanced. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who exhibited imbalanced behavior, where they went from one extreme to another extreme? Saul. Another name that comes to mind is Peter. Peter. In John chapter 13, Peter says to the Lord, I will lay down my life for you. In chapter 18, he pulls out his sword to prevent Jesus from being uh, um, arrested. By the time you get to the end of chapter 18, he is denying that he even knew Jesus. I don't know what all the extremes are, but that seems extreme to me. 
at one moment, extreme level of loyalty, and at the other moment, an extreme level of disloyalty. Elders are to be temperate. They are to be balanced. They are to be self-controlled. They are not to be, they are not to be given to extremes, reacting in one way or reacting in another way. So think of it this way. We need elders who are proactive, but not activists, not extreme. They need to react, but not be reactionary. We need elders who are balanced, not given to jumping the gun, uh, not given to going to extremes. We need elders who don't lose their cool and are not driven by every whim of their fancy. Balanced, self-control, temperate. Elders must be steady. They must be steady. Um, Sober-minded is our next qualification. Sober-minded. An overseer must be sober-minded. Uh, this word is the word sophron. Sophron. That's important because I want you to, I'm going to compare it with another word that sounds similar here in a bit. Um, it means to be sensible, to be discreet, wise, rational, to have a sound mind, to be sound in their thinking. We could even say it means that they exercise common sense. Um, one thing that, a, a sarcastic thing that would always come up in the Marine Corps where they would say common sense was not a common virtue uh, when they were talking about decisions that were made to say that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but elders are supposed to have common sense. This word sophron is related to the Greek word for wisdom. The Greek word for wisdom is sophia, sophia. You can hear the similarity, sophron and sophia. Uh, wisdom is best described as the application, maybe the proper application of knowledge. Wisdom is just not knowing facts. It is using those facts appropriately. It's the proper employment of the facts. And when we think about how does the elder show sound thinking, how do they show wisdom? It is the application of biblical knowledge, biblical understanding. So an elder must have a sound mind. They must be sound in their thinking. They must be rational. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that the elders be able to think well, be able to think things through? Well, first, it's important because elders have to make decisions. One of the things that leaders do is make decisions. And in the case of the church, these decisions should be based on sound biblical thinking. Secondly, the elders are going to have to deal with difficulties. Difficulties that usually involve people. So they must be able to think through difficult situations. Situations where a decision they make will have an effect and even times a ripple effect on people. They want to be able to make a decision that has uh, as few unintended consequences as possible. So they have to think through how do we deal with difficult situations. Thirdly, elders are going to deal with things that are not explicitly spelled out in the Bible. Do you realize in our church, from week to week, we deal with things that aren't explicitly spelled out in the Bible all the time. No, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that, um, you know, we, we are to have a budget and we are supposed to lay this budget out and line items and things. It doesn't tell us that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us where we have to meet. Uh, the Bible uh, doesn't tell us who our missionaries 
are to be. It doesn't tell us those things. These things have to uh, have wisdom applied to them. There has to be sound thinking applied to them. So elders must be able to think through things biblically, doctrinally, and practically. Elders have to be able to think well. Uh, simple, uh, to simply act without thinking or to think poorly about things disqualifies a man from being an elder. If he can't think through things, then he can't be an elder. Uh, an elder must have a balanced disposition. They must be steady, not jumping from, from conclusions to other conclusions or jumping into actions. Uh, they must be able to think through things. They must have sound minds. They have to have the ability to think realistically and not be controlled by optimism or pessimism. You know, a good illustration of a man who did not exercise this quality, it's Japheth. Do you remember Japheth? Acts, or Acts, uh, Judges chapter 11. Japheth, remember what he did? He said to the Lord, he made a vow to the Lord, Lord, if you will deliver my enemies into my hands, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will offer as a burnt offering. Remember what the first thing is that came out of his house? His daughter. His daughter. That was a rash vow, a rash decision. That did not show sober-mindedness on the part of Japheth. Elders must be sober-minded. They must have sound minds. They must be able to exercise sound thinking. Uh, the next qualification that we have for overseers here is of good behavior, of good behavior. An overseer must be of good behavior. This is the word cosmion, cosmion. Now, what does that sound like in English? Cosmos, cosmos. And so cosmos is actually a Greek word. It's not an English word. It's cosmos. And what the Greeks meant by the word cosmos is much more than the world. It's much more than creation. It's much more than the universe. It was the idea of an uh, of, of a orderly, harmonious arrangement. And so when the Greeks used the word cosmos or cosmos, they had the idea of orderly arrangement in mind. And when I was thinking about this uh, this week, the thought came to me about evolutionists. Evolutionists study the cosmos. You know, uh, um, I'm going to, I'm trying not to say this. There's two words that are very similar in my mind, and I don't want to get the, the wrong one. Uh, cosmology. Not cosmetology. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Cosmology is the study of the universe. It is the study of the origin, even, of the universe. But do you know what evolutionists think about the universe? They think the universe went from disorder and it's moving towards order disorder, moving towards order. The Bible presents the exact opposite. The Bible says when God created the heavens and the earth, it was very good. It was all in order. And when sin came into creation, it threw the cosmos into disorder. So the, the biblical pre uh, presentation of the universe is that it started orderly, harmoniously arranged, and because of sin, it has moved into disorder. And the rest of human history is about God bringing the creation back into order. Evolutionists don't believe that. They believe it started in disorder and it's moving towards order. And so I, I just kind of chuckle and smile on the inside when I hear Evolutionists talk about the cosmos because the word they're using means the exact opposite of what they believe. 
And so when you hear an evolutionist talk about the cosmos, you can think to yourself, that person has no idea what they're talking about. And so here's the, the word cosmion. Now, there's another word, a common English word that we get from, I've already mentioned it, but it's cosmetics. Cosmetics. And what are cosmetics for? What do we use cosmetics for? The ornamentation of the face. To put one's face in order. To present your face as being well-ordered. Now, that's probably not the most delicate way to put that, but that's the idea of cosmetics. Orderly arrangement. And so when we look at this word and we look at it here in many of our Bibles, if you're using a King James or New King James, you see the phrase of good behavior. And that's a little bit misleading. That's not an exactly uh, great translation of the word. Because in the Greek's mind, this word referred to a well-ordered life. So kosmion is talking about a well-ordered life, which in turn is a life that is admirable, respectable, and honorable. The opposite of this kind of life is a chaotic life, a life that brings shame on the person. And, and I think in this word we have somewhat of a cause and effect relationship. If there is an orderly life, the effect of that orderly life is you have a respectable life, an admirable life. And so why is it important? Why is it important that an elder possess the quality of an orderly life, a respectable life? Why is it important for them to be characterized by this? Well, have you ever met someone who was habitually disorderly in all aspects of their life? Have you ever met somebody like that? Uh, sometimes their appearance um, speaks more than words. When you meet somebody like that, do you trust them? Would you trust them with your money? Would you want them to lead you? Or maybe I should put it this way. Would you follow them? Do you respect them? The answer to that is no, you wouldn't. You would not trust your money. You would not follow a man whose appearance looked like he slept in his clothes. So here's, here's another Marine Corps reference here. Um, so we, we used to have, this is, this is humorous, we used to have an award that we would give to guys, guys. And this award was because of how bad they looked in their uniform. And, and this award, we, it, we gave it to them because we, we would say, uh, you jumped on the wrinkle bomb to save the squad. So the idea is they, they, they sacrifice themselves and all the wrinkles in the squad are, round up, are rounded up into their uniform and that they jumped on this wrinkle bomb to save everybody else. Of course, we were being sarcastic when we did that. But when, but when you think about a person who is disorderly, a person who doesn't have orderliness as a part of their life, one of the, one of the images that came to my mind was Otis. You remember Otis from the Andy Griffith show? Otis. Would you follow Otis? Would you trust Otis? You would not. Uh, but having said that, I want you to understand that this word is not, it's not focused on appearance. It is not focused on appearance. I only use that as an illustration. It is speaking to the life particularly the spiritual life of the elder. When you look at the life of an elder, it should be respectable. You should be able to respect them, especially in their spiritual life. The elder is where he needs to be, when he needs to be there. He does what he needs to do when it needs to be done. His relationship with God is where it needs to be. He exhibits an orderly, respectful attitude 
in his life. So as we look at this, we have seen so far that elders must be well-balanced in their disposition. They can't be given to extremes. They have to be clear and rational in their thinking. They have to have a sound mind, and they must have an orderly, respectable life in their thinking and in their day-to-day relationship with God. This brings up the fourth qualification that we have here in this list, and this is the word hospitable. Hospitable. An overseer must be hospitable. And this is the word philoexion. Philoexion or philoexion. And this word means lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. In other words, it's the idea that you treat a stranger as you would treat your friend. You know, when we think about the word hospitable or hospitality, in our culture anyway, often it has the idea of just entertaining guests, that you have someone over to your house, maybe you give them lodging, maybe you have a meal with them, something like that. And I think all those things can be included under this word, but this word is much broader than just having a meal with somebody, providing a meal with somebody. Uh, The idea here is that the elder is taking care of someone or, or cares for someone who isn't a close acquaintance. And so we see in this qualification that the elder must exercise care without partiality. He must treat strangers with the same respect that he treats his friends. And this is important. This is important because if an, if an elder will care for those Uh, that he doesn't know, he will certainly care for those that he does know. It shows to us that the elder is to have a caring attitude. Uh, He is to have a sensitivity to the needs of those around him, even the needs of people who he runs into but he does not know. But even more than that, I think we also see in this word of hospitality that the elder is not partial. The elder doesn't show partiality towards any particular group. There's not an in crowd for the elder. This means that when you come to the elder with an issue, you will get a fair hearing. You don't have to worry about, well... Am I part of the end group? Is he going to listen to me even though I'm not a part of the end group? And, and to be sure, there are some people who are closer to elders than other people. But for an elder to have the position of church leadership, it means that that relationship doesn't matter whatsoever when it comes to making decisions or giving spiritual advice. And so being hospitable It's not just having people over for lunch on Sunday or even being friendly. It's the idea of caring for people. A couple examples that we find in the New Testament of people like this are Priscilla and Aquila, Mary, the mother of Mark, the writer of the epistle or the gospel of Mark, and Lydia, who all gave of themselves to serve the church, to care uh, for others. The elder must be hospitable, must care for people. Uh, I guess the seventh one, the seventh one on our list here, the last one we're going to look at this morning, is able to teach. And so Charlie will be especially careful to pay attention to what I say here. This is the word, the doxtikon, the doxtikon. Um, An elder must be able to teach. And, And this phrase that we have in English, able to teach, reflects the same broad character that the Greek word has. It can mean one who can teach, as in he has the knowledge and skill to teach, and this is towards the area of competency. Or it can mean one who is qualified 
to teach. He has the right character that is required of a teacher. Now, what this is not saying, when it says that an overseer must be able to teach, what that doesn't mean is that the overseer must have the spiritual gift of teaching. That's not what it's talking about. You know, there is a spiritual gift of teaching. But this is not saying that the elder must have the spiritual gift of teaching. And while it's true that some of the elders may have this gift, it is not a requirement to be an elder. You do not have to have the spiritual gift of teaching to be an elder. But you must be able to teach. Now, what are some of the character qualities that are involved in being able to teach? Let me give you just two. Number one is an attitude of ignorance. Well, what do you mean that, an attitude of ignorance? It means that you are humble enough to know that you don't know everything. You're humble enough to admit that you do have ignorance about certain things. And it also means that when you have an attitude of ignorance, when you have this humility that says, I know I don't know everything, that should push you to continue to study and learn. So an elder must be someone who studies and learns. They must continue to learn the scriptures. And that also leads to the fact that elders must have a teachable spirit. If you're going to be able to teach, you, you have to have a teachable spirit. If you're going to learn, you have to be willing to learn from others whether you learn from them in person or you learn from books or whatever it might be, you have to be willing to learn from others. And so the, an elder must be able to teach. They must understand that for them to teach, they have to be learners themselves and they must have a teachable spirit. And so an elder must be a man who has the capacity to teach others. Now, it's interesting that when you see this phrase in the Bible, that it doesn't go into too many specifics. It doesn't specify the format for teaching. So this is one format where someone stands up in front of you, and it's a one-way thing. I speak, you're listening, hopefully. There's other formats where it's more of a discussion. This was when Paul went into the synagogues and he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. The, the idea there is a dialogue. It's a two-way conversation. Was Paul teaching them? Yes, he was. He was teaching them. But this word here, this phrase here, doesn't specify what the format is. It could be teaching the entire church. It could be teaching a small group. It could even be teaching one-on-one. -on -one. And furthermore, to have the capacity to teach assumes that you have something to teach. You know, you, can, you, you have something that you can say to teach people. And this, this assumes that there's a certain level of biblical knowledge that every elder should have. So when we think about what does it mean, able to teach, it's talking about a person who possesses the characteristics of a teacher. They possess the characteristics of a teacher. Now, why is it important that elders are able to teach? First, we, we know that not all elders are going to be teaching all the time. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, if you look there in your Bible real quick, you will notice that it says that there's elders who rule and there's elders who rule and labor in word and doctrine. Now, this is talking about honoring these elders. It says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. And so that word there especially is singling out within the group that rules. There are also those who labor in word and doctrine. So they're teaching. They're teaching. And so not all elders are going to be uh, teaching all the time. But it's important that they're able to teach. You know, in our 
culture, in our contemporary context here, we view the pastor, who is one of the elders, as the chief teacher of the church. But what happens when there's no pastor? What happens when pastors, you know, pastors die, retire, resign, all sorts of things. What happens when there's no pastor, when there's no chief teacher of the church? Does the church just fold up and close the doors? We know, of course, not that that is not true. What happens is there are to be men, there are to be elders in the church who can step into that teaching role. Doesn't mean that they'll be the best teachers in the world, but it means they have the capacity to do that. They possess the characteristics of being a teacher. Um, and, And to do that, the elders must be developing their abilities to teach. You know, nobody, nobody is born with all the information that needs to be taught. You realize that, right? You're not, you're not born with the knowledge to teach. You're not born with all the biblical knowledge you need in order to teach some, someone else. You know, if I got up in the pulpit on a Sunday without preparing, you would probably notice it right away. You would probably notice it because I would probably talk more about my week. I would talk more about things, various different things going in the, on in the world. I would probably mention a few little Bible nuggets from here and there and that type of thing. But I can tell you, if I do not study, take the time in the week to study the Word of God, I have nothing to say. I certainly have nothing worthwhile to say to you. Because what matters is the word of God. And so the elders must be continually giving themselves to the study of the word of God. Because shallow teaching produces shallow Christians. Shallow teaching produces stagnant Christians. By the way, did you know that it's not optional for everybody else in the church to be teachers? It's not just that elders should be teachers. You remember what the Great Commission says? You know what it says? Go, therefore, into all the world, teach. Teach. It's a command. It's a command. So each one of us are commanded to teach. But the accountability is, it here is higher for the elders. So the elders must have this characteristic of being able to teach. So I want us, in conclusion here, I want us to consider how these qualifications that we're saying, the elders of the church must meet these qualifications. It is necessary. It's not an option. They must meet these qualifications. I want us to think how these qualifications or what these qualifications teach us about God. Because while these qualifications are very practical, I mean, they really do help in the organization and and the operation of the church. But there's something much, much more profound here. So think of these qualifications in terms of the attributes of God. How about the attribute of blameless? God can't be charged with evil. Attribute of husband of one wife. God is absolutely faithful, temperate. God is steady. He doesn't vacillate between uh, uh, extremes. Sober-minded. God is the God of reason, logic, and sound thinking. What he does and what he says actually makes sense. God is orderly and respectable. God always acts in an orderly way that everyone can respect. Do you realize there's people out there who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? They don't believe he's the Savior, but they still Respect Jesus because the life he lived on the earth. An orderly, respectable life. How about hospitality, hospitable? 
And that isn't hospitality, being hospitable, fundamental to who God is, that he loves and he cares for people, others besides himself. That's fundamental to who God is. Able to teach. God is the communicator. God can communicate exactly what he wants to communicate. So in a very real sense, we might call all these qualifications the communicable attributes of God. You know, there are some attributes of God that are not communicable, that do not come over to humans. Eternality, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. None of us will ever experience those things. None of us. Those are attributes of God that we cannot possess. However, there are attributes that we can possess. These are called the communicable attributes. Righteousness, justice, love, and so on. These qualifications for elders are communicable attributes of God. And this should raise them to a whole new level of importance in our thinking. Because we are not just saying elders must follow and, and have these qualities. We are saying elders must have these attributes of God. But that raises a really difficult question. How can any man attain to the attributes of God? You know what the answer is? They can't. They can't. At least they can't in and of themselves. No amount of self-discipline, no strategy, no accountability network is going to enable a man to have these attributes. The only way a person can have these attributes is because the Holy Spirit dwells in them. And who does the Holy Spirit indwell? He indwells the believer. One of the key prerequisites for being an elder that we have taken for granted so far is that they are believers. And as believers, they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, enabling them, and leading them. And so for a man to meet these qualifications, it's not simply that he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But for a man to meet these qualifications, he has to yield himself and submit to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit in their everyday life. And the same thing can be said of us, each and every one of us, every believer. These qualifications are all attributes that you as a believer are to possess. These are attributes you are to be characterized by. But in order to do that, you have to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, how are you doing in relation to these qualifications, these attributes? You know, a, a biblical phrase, a theological phrase connected to this is being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what having these attributes is about. It is about the elders and every believer being conformed unto the image of Christ. The world is trying to get you to conform to it. You're immersed in the world, and very often the only refuge, the only island in a sea of worldliness that you have is a couple hours a week here at church, a few minutes a day in your quiet time and devotions. You are being inundated by the world seeking to conform you. And we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed. And we are to become in the image of Jesus Christ. Does that concern even cross your mind from day to day? Do you ever ask yourself in the day, am I conformed to the image of Christ? You know, as we go about our day, I'm going to encourage you that each day, as you face different situations that come up in life, and they're all different for each of us, 
We're unique people. We have unique lives. We face unique situations. But I want you to start asking yourself, how might God be using this situation, this circumstance, to conform me more to the image of his son, Jesus Christ? What is God trying to do in me? How is God trying to change me because of what's happening around me? Character is more important than competency. And the character that we are to hold our elders to, the character that the church is accountable to hold the elders to, this character that we ourselves are to possess is Christ-like character. Won't you stand with me? And as our closing prayer, I'm going to read from the hymn we sang earlier today, Oh, to be like thee. I'm just going to read the first stanza as our closing prayer. Oh, to be like thee. Blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures. Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Father, it's our desire to be conformed to the image of your Son as you have promised in your word that one day we will be. In that desire, I pray that you would help us submit to how the Holy Spirit leads us and guiding us to have attributes, characteristics that are Christ-like. And Lord, as we find and we discover in our heart those pockets, uh, those areas that we have uh, not given over to you, Lord, as you convict us of those things, help us, help us submit to how the Holy Spirit is leading us to change those areas. And we are so thankful and we honor you and we exalt you this morning because you have given each believer the Holy Spirit who is working in our hearts. Lord, help us to follow where he leads. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.